When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's a destination. We are finally here. Let's go. What is good, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Destination Dynasty. I am your voracious host, Scott Connor. You can find me on X at Charles Chill FFB. Please check out everything at DestinationDevi.com. You can also sign up for the Discord at Patreon.com backslash all gas. Join the Trades in 5 tier or the Destination 5 tier on the website and you get access to bonus content every single week. And that is going to be ramping up. I know I keep saying that. But I promise it is in the works. There will be even more coming from the Trades in 5 team and from the Destination Devi team in the Discord, on the private feed that you get access to, along with the YouTube channel and along with the podcast feed, Wake Up with Ray G and the Destination Devi radio feed, which you are listening to right now. So subscribe, like, give feedback to all of those as we continue to grow the platform and some cool stuff will be coming here as we get into off-season mode for the 2024 Dynasty season. So with that... The last four shows, I did the roster construction series. I talked about each position and based it on a format 12-team, start 11, 30-man rosters, 1.75 tight end premium, and otherwise just standard sleeper scorings. I did make it three receivers because that's what's typical, but other than that, no changing any of the other scoring settings. And I did that for a reason so everyone could kind of think about a base format with those settings. And then adjust it to whatever your league has. We run into a lot of leagues where it's slightly different. Maybe there's a point per carry. Maybe there's some bonuses. Maybe the lineup settings are a little bit different. The roster sizes are a little bit different. So you can tweak accordingly. But generally, the layout of how I would roster construct doesn't really change. And I think one way you can take it and you say, Scott, I have only 28 roster spots here. Or it's only start 10 28 roster spots, or the tight end premium is 1.5. It really doesn't change much. You can probably take the percentages from the roster construction series and generally apply that to your league if you have less roster spots or if you have more starters, etc. It's not that difficult to take the percentages, and I'll run through it again. So if we're talking 30-man rosters, taxi, no taxi doesn't count here, it's 30-man rosters. So if you have a taxi, and it's rookies or second-year players, whatever it is, budget those into your roster spots. The more flexible, the closer it is to the roster construction series that I'm talking about. So here, two tight ends. 
Two tight ends is the rule. It is the limit. Where you draft the tight ends, where you pay for the tight ends, how much you spend, that is up to you. I think a lot of people understand tight end war, how top-heavy it is, and how in certain ranges it really doesn't matter. The main goal, and this is going to be a little bit of a recap show, and then also some ways where you can start moving your construction to the direction that you want to go, and how to play it in the next eight, nine months into the offseason. I am going to do a second series coming up here, offseason prep. That will be next weekend's show on things you specifically should be looking for on your rosters before the season ends, meaning before waivers close, before the trade scope closes. And what I mean by that is essentially as soon as the season ends, the scope of what's important in trades, if you can still make moves, changes. Right? Like people are not after players that are scoring points. That resets. The season is over. So I think it's important to go through some of those tips and tricks that you can make because a lot of leagues, things stop after week 17. It's over. Waivers close. Nothing really can be done until free agency or beyond. And then you get into the draft. That's five months after the season ends. A lot, a lot can change in that period of time. So you want to at least try to optimize your rosters the best that you can. It's not just roster construction. It's other small things that you can do to start moving your team towards a better position into the offseason. But this recap is just going to be roster construction series and some other reasons why you want to start moving in the direction of the right roster construction. And it was two tight ends. So back just to the recap, two tight ends, that's it. The whole theme of this, regardless of your scoring, regardless of your roster spots, nothing is more important than the idea that you do not want to waste roster spots on tight ends. And it was very simple. The war says that's the case. Forget about who your starter is. Forget about who the tight ends are that you have. You don't want to race extra roster spots at that position. And the only caveat is, can you move them? If they are asset driving roster spots, then fine. But in the majority of leagues, even 1.75, rarely do you go, hey, I have that third tight end chilling on my bench. Who wants to give me anything for him? And you may have a couple guys like that. Guys like Tucker Craft, guys like Jelani Woods. Sure, they may be sitting there as your third, fourth, fifth tight end. But if I do a roster review, if you come to me and say, how's my roster construction? My first thought, what is the tight end premium? What is the tight end market? And how far outside of construction are you? Every single day I see a roster that has five tight ends. And three of them are Isaiah Likely, Jelani Woods, Kate Otten. They're just names. Noah Fant. They're just sitting there and you're wondering, okay, this guy is good enough not to cut. Especially in a 1.75 or a 1.5 where other people think the position is important. But what's the mechanism to any sort of equity? to that player, to that roster spot. Hey, are you starting Kate Otten? No, I've only started him one time. When did you start him? Well, I started him when I didn't have anybody else and he gave me three points. Like literally that is happening and you are wasting spots. You are wasting potential liquidity by holding too many tight ends. So the first question, the easiest low hanging fruit move most rosters can make is how many tight ends do you have? What can I get for him? And sometimes you have to go to the uncomfortable range and say, okay, the season is over. What tight ends can I trade? You probably can't trade some of those lower end tight ends because there's a reason you have five of them on your team. It's most likely because everybody else goes, yeah, those guys are sure I'd pick them up if you cut them, but they're not worth anything. 
Oh, but can you trade Evan Ingram? Probably. Could you get a first for Evan Ingram in a 1.5 tight end premium? Probably not. 1.75? Probably not outside of the season. But is there a creative move I can make? Can I get a second and a running back that can help kind of give me another shot next year if I'm playing the any running back on a 53 roster construction? And that's going to feel uncomfortable because now you're betting against a guy like Evan Ingram being a top five tight end like he's been. I would prefer just to ride with him, but what I don't want to do is get nothing for all the other tight ends that I have. But if I'm holding some of those other guys, let's say Tucker Craft is a great example of a tight end people are probably holding. What if Tucker Craft can give me the second piece of a platoon and I already have a tight end, let's say Hunter Henry. Now you may say, man, Hunter Henry and Tucker Craft, that's a gross tight end platoon. But if you don't have any choices, there were probably eight weeks this year. You probably could have started those guys and gotten equivalent production to what you were getting out of Evan Inger. But people don't want to hear that. They don't want to think about, well, you know, I'd rather just have the guy that I can start. That's great. I agree with you. But you're already in a spot where you have too many tight ends. So that is the lowest hanging fruit move that most dynasty rosters can make, even in 1.75 premium, but definitely in 1.5. I mean, I see teams that have five, six tight ends and it's half PPR. You're just wasting roster spots. So shop the market, go out there and see what you can get for the tight ends. Most likely, there's a reason you're in the spot you are. It's because everybody else is looking for one thing, a tight end upgrade. So if you have somebody, let's say David Njoku, David Njoku finished this season, smashed to end this season. Let's say you can actually trade him now. The benefit is you can trade him and you can hold one of those other two or three that you have on your bench. And those can be your platoon. Now, if you don't like those guys, I get that. But what I don't want to do is carry all of them and go, well, I don't have a great tight end. I have a guy like Njoku. I don't trust him fully. But he's going to be my starter. But if he falters, I have five other guys like Hunter Henry and Noah Fan on my bench. And I'm just going to wait and see what happens. And you wait and you wait and you wait. And four years later, you've wasted five roster spots a year on tight ends. And you've gotten nothing out of them. You know, in a game where Noah Fant scores 20 points, you weren't starting him. Hunter Henry scores two touchdowns. He wasn't in your lineup. He's just there. But he never has any trade value. So thinking about tight ends as a mechanism to trade value, which means if I go to the market and I can't get anything for them, why are they on my roster unless they are part of my two that I'm carrying? And that's going to be the platoon that I bank on. So two tight ends. I've hit that topic. I've hammered it home enough. Two tight ends. That's really where I want to sit regardless. And if you don't like the names, consider going out there and getting an upgrade. But we also know how difficult that is unless you're really willing to pay the extreme market price. So two tight ends out of 30. Now, if you only have 28 roster spots, that doesn't change. If you only have 32 roster spots, it really doesn't change. The only time it changes is you say, you know what? I have a couple tight ends that I might be able to sell. I have three tight ends right now, and I think I might be able to sell all of them. So you don't just dump them, right? You're not selling them for anything. You want to be a little more calculated with what you sell them for. But the key is you still want to be trying to sell them. You have Michael Mayer, you have Trey McBride, and you have David Njoku in a 1.5 premium. I've seen teams like that. Okay, all three of them have value. All three of them have a little upside. All three of them have trade market value. Don't hold on to all three. Go liquidate one. Even if you only get 75% what you think you should get, you're better off taking the 75% 
using the roster spot elsewhere and applying that 75% liquidity that you get into another asset. So I can't stress it enough. I don't want to overcarry tight ends in leagues. So let's move on to the other positions. Receiver, I think, is the second easiest for people to understand because we have the threshold. Listen to the last episode where I talked about the threshold. But I think receiver is the one where you can be the most fluid. So if I'm taking 30 roster spots, two of them are tight ends. I said the magic number at receiver was seven. Now that is a fluid number. That is a number that I am actually okay with that increasing as we get into free agency and as we get into draft season, especially in a draft season where receivers are going to be abundant. There's going to be a lot of good ones in the class, meaning you may have a couple picks, you may have a late first, you may have two seconds, and you may already have seven receivers on your team that you trust. And some of them can be threshold receivers that they survived another year. Tyler Lockett, DeAndre Hopkins, Mike Evans, Keenan Allen, maybe. Those are all guys where you say, you know what, they're not top 50 dynasty receivers, most likely. Maybe on the very fringe, guys like Evans, Keenan Allen, Hopkins, Lockett will probably fall out. But I'm sticking to top 50 dynasty value, top 40 dynasty value. It will not have it. Their value is what are they producing for you. But if you want to count them for one more season, or at least until otherwise noted as part of my threshold, perfect. They're right there. They count towards my seven, which means if I'm now thinking about drafting one in the late first, maybe drafting another in the early second or mid second, I may get above that number of seven. I may get to nine. I may get to 10. There's some teams where I already have eight and I have three first round picks. I'm flush with receivers. Now, the goal is I'm looking to dwindle that down and be selective about it. The more you have, the more options you have. There are some leagues where I look and I go, I have DeAndre Hopkins and I have Mike Evans. Those are part of my seven. But from a dynasty perspective, they are not really dynasty assets. They are more value to my team than they are to everybody else. So you have to look at this as a very dynamic way of building your receiver room. You want to have maybe an anchor. You want to have a CD Lamb. Then maybe you want to have a Brandon Ayuk and a Puka Nakua. Then maybe you have a couple guys that you like, but really their dynasty value is dwindling. So you have Deontay Johnson, maybe you have Chris Godwin. Then finally, you have Keenan Allen and DeAndre Hopkins. That's a hell of a wide receiver stable, but really only like three of those guys probably have true market value to where the wide receiver boom actually impacts. Ayuk, Puka Nakua, CeeDee Lamb. Those are the three where you go, all right, I can really trade these guys. The rest of them, you immediately come to the conclusion, hey, does anybody want Deontay Johnson? Yeah, I'll give you the 210 and a third. And you have to sit there and decide, okay, is that actually worth what I could get from the player? I know it's a good player. I know it's a guy that's always going to have a 20 plus percent target share. Do I really want to move him for those picks? And in some circumstances, if you say, you know what, if I can liquidate one of these guys and the liquidation price on Keenan Allen with the influx of unsure situation around him, there's probably not going to be a move that you can move Keenan Allen where you say, I can get bang for my buck. So really your trade options are going to be very limited. So if you're in that circumstance where your receiver room looks something like that and you have some draft capital, maybe you go, okay, can I move Mike Evans for a 25 first? Can I add a third to Mike Evans to get a 25 first? How about a 26 first? And, ah, man, I don't really want to move them for picks that are two years out like that. 
But the idea is you are already going to hit the build that you want in the form of you have the six other receivers besides Evans and you have a couple draft picks. Now, you may not love what you're getting with those draft picks. It may be Xavier Worthy, wide receiver eight. And you go, ah, man, he's not going to produce like Mike Evans. That's not the point. The point is with the construction, you are building a dynamic wide receiver core and really always trying to be around that seven number if you get the best bang for your buck. Meaning if I'm at 10, I don't need 10. I don't need 10 receivers, even if a couple of them are dynasty ADV and a couple of them are pure production value. I want to blend. So you could justify going up to eight if your blend is very much like pure youth and all veterans. But other than that, I don't want to be higher than that because I think the way that I'm going to want to construct my other positions is more important than doing it at wide receiver. Because we think this is a huge wide receiver market. Everybody loves receivers. Everybody wants the next big thing at receiver. Really what that's saying, everybody wants the top 15 to 20 receivers. That's truly what everybody wants. Nobody wants Chris Godwin. Nobody wants Deontay Johnson. Nobody wants Tyler Lockett or DeAndre Hopkins or Mike Evans or Keenan Allen. This is in May of the offseason. Those guys are just, I'll take them if I can get them. But what is the question? Usually, how low can I buy those guys? And we're already assuming that you're constructing your team where you see the value in those guys, meaning you're probably not going to be the team that goes, yeah, I don't really want them. They're old. You know, that's not how we're playing Dynasty. We're playing here with a meticulous roster construction, not a that guy's on the downswing. I've already accepted when I have Keenan Allen on my roster that he's on the downswing. And I reassess it every time there is a market for him. I'll reassess whether I want to hold him at his current market. And more often than not, it's, man, he's producing. I really don't want to get rid of him. But there may be a window. Hey, during next season, someone may buy him. It may not be for really what you think he's worth in your lineup, but someone may buy him. So I think that's the idea with receiver is that we may say there's so many good receivers. This guy's a good receiver. This guy's a great receiver. Christian Kirk, very good receiver. Really good bet to finish between wide receiver 20 and wide receiver 35. There's zero demand for him. The only demand is, hey, I'll take him, sure. But as soon as it comes up to ponying real assets to get him, nobody's interested. And that's the majority of the receiver market. I did the Dynasty Portfolio Weekly show and talked about how important that tier two of receivers is. When I mean tier two, I mean outside of the top 10. That 10 through 25, that is the most important tier to navigate because that is the range where people want those players. The players below that, the receivers from wide receiver, let's say 25 to 50, those are the receivers that people will take those guys. They don't really want them. It's the guys in the tier above, which is where all of the higher end receiver draft picks this year are going to are going to be found. And it's where you find the Michael Pittman's, DJ Moore's, Brandon Ayuk's, DK Metcalf's. People know these guys are good receivers and they're still in their primes. So there's demand for them. But there's not the, oh my gosh, that guy's a wide receiver one. It's basically, I'll buy him from you. Those guys may even be worth mid to late first. Same with the rookies that are coming in this year. Those are the new hotness. This is this year's version of Jordan Addison and Zay Flowers. They're going to be right in that range. Whether they're good or not, they're going to start in that range, that top 30 or better range. That's just the nature of how we're going to value assets in Dynasty. But that's the range where you can actually make some profit. You can spot somebody in your league, man, someone really loves Brandon Ayuk. They are willing to give me DK Metcalf in two seconds. 
And they'll pay it because they prefer the one over the other. Then you go take those two seconds and go, what else can I do with that? And effectively, you've played the tiers exactly how you want to play. You don't see the difference between the two, but somebody will have a preference in that range. The range below that, Christian Kirk, Deontay Johnson, Hollywood Brown. Sure, I'll take them if you give them to me for free. I'll buy them low. But there's no such thing as buying low. It's buying because someone else doesn't want. It's not buying low. If the person actually wants the player, there really isn't low. It's just buying. And I don't want to go, hey, I'm going to go pay the 201 where I could probably get the wide receiver 7 or 8 in the class. I'm not buying Hollywood Brown for that. And if I do, I've already made my bed. I've said, you know what, I probably am good with just liquidating that pick for a receiver that adds to my threshold. So hopefully this makes sense. Again, it is more about building a wide receiver room, a dynamic room that has some flexibility. It has some value, meaning I want to have at least one elite one, and then I want to have a couple in that 10 to 24, 10 to 25 range where I know they do have some flexibility because people like those. Then I'm fine rounding it out with production. You know, the guys in the next tier, the Godwins, the Kirks, the Deontay Johnsons, the, the younger guys that are still 27, 28, and they're not 31, 32, like DeAndre Hopkins or Keenan Allen. I'm fine having a few of those as well, but you're layering your receiver core and you ultimately want to be around that seven number. Maybe you can go to eight. I've seen some rooms where you can go to six. If you have three top 12 receivers, then you have a couple of other good ones on top of that. You don't need to have the seven. But the point is, I want to be in that range. I always want to be using this receiver-heavy market to navigate the range and go, how can I gain liquidity so I can go and actually improve the other two spots where I think the most war with the most inefficient market can be found. So we're looking at seven receivers. You add that to the two tight ends. We have 21 roster spots, right? So why is it so important to leave this much flexibility for running backs and for quarterbacks? And there's two reasons. One, we've seen how volatile the running back market is. We've seen how valuable running back production is on a week-to-week basis when somebody has it and you need it. Now, we also know that as soon as that production goes away, the majority of the value goes away. And when I say value, it isn't necessarily what you can trade them for because there are leagues where if a running back has no opportunity or they're not scoring points, there is no price you can get for it. And that's the reality with the running back position is it is almost like the supply and demand is driven by the immediate opportunity. There is very little ADV. There's very little dynasty assessment at the position anymore. And this used to be something you could exploit. A year or two ago, you used to be able to say, okay, I have some quote-unquote job security or long-term upside with this running back. And someone else may buy into that. They may buy into the fact that Devon A-Chain is going to have this role in Miami for four years. And they're willing to buy that the role is going to constantly evolve. Maybe it gets better, and maybe it does. But the idea is there's very few people out there that are looking at most running back situations and saying, well, nothing's going right now. The player is either hurt or not producing right now. But you know what? I will bet that next year it turns around. Next year, this guy's still going to be in a very touch-heavy role, and I'm willing to bet on the production in the future. And sometimes you're going to get that right. But I think generally the community has said... I'm not playing running back that way. I've been burned too many times by saying, well, I know he ended last year injured, but Damian Pierce is going to be a starter next year. And then, yeah, sure, technically he's a starter, 
but he comes in and he's really not productive. And now you're looking at him like he goes from starter to he's just a body. And really, we should have always been treating guys like that as just a body, except for maybe they have a little bit of a better path to getting starter opportunity. But more people are now looking at that type of profile and saying there's zero value unless they're producing. Meaning you will see trades where someone will trade Damian Pierce for Zach Moss or Najee Harris for Raheem Mostert. And you might go, that's crazy. Raheem Mostert literally could be out of the league. I mean, sure. But what are you actually holding if you're holding somebody like Najee or Damian Pierce? Really, all you're holding is a guy that you're pretty confident in the future is going to have more opportunities of, well, maybe he'll get 20 touches in this game. But that's still going to be dependent on how good those opportunities are, how good the offense is, etc., for you actually to have some sort of value attached to that player. So as more people start to view the position this way, and I won't lie, I think Shane and I have a lot of impact on this in the way that we've talked about running backs for almost two years now. It's essentially just been sell all running backs. And really what we're saying there is not that we don't need running backs to win, not that running backs don't matter. It's that when someone else is attaching ADV or artificial dynasty value or some sort of dynasty future value to a running back, I'm willing to explore selling. And yeah, sure, there's going to be some where I even would attach some future value. Jameer Gibbs, he's a first round pick. He's going to have a ton of opportunity and he's probably not going to go anywhere for a while in terms of the premium role that he has. And then there's some other guys that we know have been extremely good in the past. Saquon Barkley, Josh Jacobs, Christian McCaffrey. Like, you know what those guys are because they've done it for a while. But a lot of these other players, it's basically maybe 10 guys, five guys if you're counting youth. I mean, the rest, Barkley, McCaffrey, Josh Jacobs. I mean, those guys are all, what have you done for me now? But I'm also confident that wherever they go, their role is probably very similar to what it's been in the past. But outside of that, nobody values running backs. Everybody is really going, hey, I'm going to try to build together a patchwork RB room. I don't want to pay a lot. I really don't want to use any high-end capital to get a running back. Sure, I'll buy Christian McCaffrey for a late first. But outside of the few transactions where that's possible, everybody else is just saying, I'll patch it together. I'll find starts what I can. And we've been doing that for a while. But as more people start doing it, the ability to transact in that market and play that way is going to be harder because everybody is going to have this fake value that they're holding because they're roster constructing a certain way, right? So I have a guy that I think I can start the rest of the year. So think of Jamal Williams in 2022. That's a perfect example of a player that had almost zero value. But as soon as the path became clear that you could start him for the rest of the season, he rose to this range of like a second round pick And for good reason, because the person that had him wouldn't sell him for less. But you also know that's a terrible dynasty investment. But the reason that he stayed at that price is because most likely the person that had him is valuing in that range because they're factoring in the potential production that they can get. Because they're going to be reliant on that same type of running back. They don't have four stud running backs ahead of him. If they did, then that guy gets traded and he gets traded to a team that goes, well, I don't have any running backs, so I got to hold on him for the rest of the year. So as everybody becomes more efficient with their running back construction, it's going to change the market. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot of because I have some teams where the running back rooms are just bare. Zero. And people will say, well, how are you going to fix that running back room? And what I'm banking on is there is going to be some places 
where I'm going to need to take some shots. There's going to be some leagues where the right veteran running back becomes available. Maybe it's a guy that signs in a place that people don't love. And you go, okay, I'm willing to make that bet. That player should be worth firing a second rounder at. And if I'm right, I'm buying a player that's been historically good, Austin Eckler. Let's say he goes to another team, and it's not a great team. And he's going to grade out extremely poorly this season. So there's going to be talk that Austin Eckler is done. And let's say he goes somewhere where there's already a good running back, and you're going, man, I really, really don't think Austin Eckler has much left. And now he's not going to be nearly as productive because the role and the offense that he's in is going to be nothing like it was with the Chargers. And that'll be a guy that you swoop in and you buy. And then you add a couple more veterans. And then you add maybe a guy that gets cut. Somebody like a Deontay Foreman that gets cut. And people go, oh, he'll never be in as good of a role as he was with the Bears. Somebody might cut him. Somebody might trade him for a fourth during the rookie draft. So you have to start looking at this number. And the number at running back was 8 to 10, but let's call it 9. So if the number is 9 at running back, I'm looking to build a dynamic running back room. But I can build it from scratch. Now, I have to have capital if I'm going to build it from scratch. If you have no running backs and no draft capital, it's going to be very hard. You can take your shots on as many freebies as possible, pick up to any running backs on a 53, which means you're probably going to have to expand your net at running back a little wider. You're probably going to have to bump that up to 11, 12, 13, maybe even more. This is if you're also trying to contend and you have no running backs. You've gutted all your running backs. You're going to have to look for some specific shots, guys you can pick up for free. So you may expand that a little bit, but in an optimal room where I maybe already have one or two running backs that I can trust, then I have some bodies, I'm okay staying around that nine. But I think the key is you want to have layers. You don't want to have just nine any running backs on a 53. I don't want nine Royce Freemans and nine Justice Hills. Like, yeah, sure, they're on 53-man rosters, but they're offering me very little upside and they're offering me very little immediate opportunity, or at least opportunity that I think is going to come in 2024. What I want to have is layers though. I want to have maybe an anchor if I can get one. If you don't have an anchor running back, consider going and getting one and not needing an anchor like I don't have to have Jameer Gibbs or Bijan Robinson or Brees Hall. My anchor can be Saquon Barkley. It can be Josh Jacobs. It can be Tony Pollard. You know, it can be an anchor where the market might be a little bit down. All they have to do is fill that placeholder of an anchor that I'm willing to bet on. And then maybe one or two after that where I go, you know what, that's a guy that I know can get touches. Maybe it's Jalen Warren. You know, maybe it's Chuba Hubbard. And then continue to layer from there. And when there's an opportunity to add another one, that's fine. I just don't want to be over-invested in too much liquidity, but I want to always be sticking near that number. I want to be at nine or ten running backs even, uh, especially if I'm a little bit weaker at the top. So it's churning and burning. It's taking shots on profiles where, and think of it this way. In a league where you have two running back starters, you need 28 spot starts for the year. 28. That's it. So think about the path when you go, do I want this running back? Think about the path where could they fill in two of those spots twice during the year? Could this running back be in one of those spots? Because if you have nine and you have 28 spots, if you can get an average of around three starts, per running back that you have, that's it. You'll be fine. Not guarantee you any war or any production there, but just filling what you're going to need. And these are opportunities that may come later on in the year too. These are opportunities that you may find on waivers 
because someone gets picked up. But just think about that. When you really think about that, I only need 28 running backs to start if I'm optimally constructed. It's a very calming feeling. Like that's not that hard, especially if you're in an active league where people are willing to trade spot starts for a third, or you can buy a guy that's getting some opportunity for a second. Like there's going to be opportunities for you to build a running back room. So I am not concerned that I can't compete at running back. It's just such a fluid market and people do not like them that much that there are going to be opportunities from January until the end of 2024 to buy running back production. So I always want to be the one where I'm sticking to this construction, but I'm also giving myself the flexibility in the form of future picks and future capital to go supplement that running back room. If I get to the year and I say, I thought I had a good room and then it's been destroyed. There's been a couple injuries. A couple guys didn't win the roles that I thought. Now I might need to consider supplementing that with some of the assets that I already have. So let's call it nine at running back. And I think that's the biggest takeaway here is you can build a running back room in an off season. It just may be a little uncomfortable, but you can do it. The market is there. So there's just no reason. Some of these rosters that I see, they have Travis Etienne, Brees Hall, and B. John Robinson on one team. Why? Why would you carry that much liquidity? And hell, those are three of the five or six running backs that actually have market value. Pure ADV market value. I can go sell them on the name. And yet sometimes we go, oh, man, I can't move ETN for that. I just can't. Do you see his production this year? I cannot move him unless I'm getting Amon Ross St. Brown. Unless I'm getting a top six draft pick. I cannot move him. And it's just not the reality. It's not going to be the case. You're going to end up with running backs that you just can't move. And slowly, what's going to happen if you hold those three into next season? Most likely, one of the three is going to lose. One of the three is going to erode. The demand is going to fall. And you're going to go, I wish I would have kind of followed this roster construction advice instead of just accepting that Brees Hall, I think, should be a first-round startup pick and no one else will pay that, so I'm just going to hold. I'm just going to hold. So with that, we'll move on. I've beat that horse to death with the running backs. I think I've really hammered home the tight end message as well. So we're at two tight ends. We're at seven wide receivers. We are at nine running backs. And you can do the math. That's 18. Subtract that from 30. You have 12 roster spots allocated to quarterback. Now, one thing that I've been challenging myself on as I break this down and go back to listen to the quarterback episode, because I think it was probably the most poignant of the four talking about the biggest change from last year's roster construction series versus this year. Is it a little bit of an overreaction? People have asked me that. Is it too much of an overreaction from this year's quarterback injuries? We're going to end up with a year where probably 60 quarterbacks start games this year. But it seems like the impact has been greater because we've lost over half of the top 15 quarterbacks coming into the season. So between Burrow and Herbert and Richardson and Deshaun Watson and Daniel Jones and Kirk Cousins, we've lost a lot of quarterbacks that people were banking on. So what's happened is we've seen, essentially because those guys have been removed, we've seen the overall aggregate production from quarterbacks fall which means the replacement value of some of the guys that you're just throwing in there. I mean, hell, look at Nick Mullins and Jake Browning, two guys that may end up finishing top 15 again. And they've risen up closer relative to the field because there's a lot of good quarterbacks that are out. So does that mean that truly you can just find waiver wire quarterbacks and replace your QB2s? I do think that's the case. That is the biggest takeaway for me is understanding the quarterback landscape and understanding how much we simply value quarterbacks that have job security. 
right? And that is one of the things you can escape with this type of roster construction. Why am I valuing Derek Carr? Why am I valuing Geno Smith? Why am I valuing Kenny Pickett, Mac Jones, those types coming into the season, Jimmy Garoppolo? Zero reason to hold any value on those guys above, okay, well, they have starting jobs and I probably don't have to mess with their role uh, until they don't have the role anymore, right? Mac Jones benched, Jimmy Garoppolo benched, Derek Carr should have been benched multiple times, Kenny Pickett probably should have been benched, now he's injured. But the idea is once you see those guys are in that range, they're not going to last forever. There's going to be a point where the team goes, yeah, this guy's not that good. And I'm not saying fantasy points correlates necessarily with real NFL play, but generally those low-end QB2s that we assign a little dynasty value to because, well, they have job security, on a week-to-week basis, somebody else is living dangerously and saying, you know what, this week I'm going to start Jake Browning. You're going to start Derek Carr. And it's a coin flip as to who has the better player, the better fantasy player for the short term. And hell, sometimes those good backups that you end up liking, they're in offenses like the Vikings, like the Bengals, like the Browns, where you're like, yeah, you know what? I kind of like the quarterback in this offense, regardless of who it is, because the offense is what's generating the points, not the quarterback. And I don't really love Derek Carr's offense. So yeah, sure. He's a starter all year. But if you look at his fantasy production, it's awful. So I think the challenge is understanding the dynamic of the QB room that you already have. And understanding that you don't need a QB3, QB4, QB5, unless that QB has high-end market liquidity. Now, in a deeper league like this, a start 11, 30-man rosters, the QB3 is probably one of the most overrated positions. Now, I will say this. If you are in a shallower league, and this might be a controversial take, but I've been thinking more about the war in a start 9. So let's say a start 9. Same format, but it's 12 teams, start 9, 24-man rosters, right? So instead of 30-man rosters, we have 24, which is six less bench spots. Instead of 11 starters, we have nine. So it's two less starters. In that, I actually don't think it's crazy to say, you know what, I'm going to try to roster three high-end quarterbacks, and I'm going to forego carrying a lot of the backups, right? Because a lot of the backups there, there's going to be more that are available because it's only 24-man rosters. But also, I don't value the replacement throw-in in that league unless it can turn into liquidity value, meaning unless I can flip those guys to somebody else when they need them, truly in a start nine, when there's less starters, it's harder for me to accept the fact that I'm just going to take quarterback 22 war on the week by starting Joe Flacco. Because in a start nine, you don't have the ability to maximize your other roster spots and your roster construction as much. You don't get to exploit it. So for instance, if we're talking roster construction efficiency, and it's a start 11 with 30-man rosters, I probably can afford to start a lower-end QB in a lot of weeks, because everyone else has to start 11 players. And I have two extra spots there to take advantage of maybe a boom week with another receiver. Maybe I start my sixth threshold receiver in a start 11. In a start 9, I'm not starting him. And then that sixth threshold receiver gets me 22 points. That's probably making up the difference between somebody that's starting Russell Wilson and Joe Flacco. You know, not only could Joe Flacco outscore Russell Wilson, but let's say Russell Wilson outscores him by two and a half points per game. I'm actually giving myself more opportunities to make it up with those other spots because we're going a little bit deeper. And as my roster is more efficient, 
Hopefully I'm optimal from spots three to 11 and I can forward the drop off at QB. In a start nine, if you have two elite QBs and then you just have bodies after that, if you lose one of those elite QBs and you're going to lose at least each of them once due to their bye weeks, but if you have an injury, if you have a quarterback that goes out for four weeks and it's a top 12 QB, and now you're relying on a backfield Nick Mullins as your starting quarterback, you don't have the capacity to leverage the fact that your roster construction was good. You only have seven other starters besides your QB. So you've gone from projected top 12 war or better at the position to, man, that's going to be below everybody else. So the impact is bigger. It is spread among fewer starters, which means the impact is bigger. So in a shallower league, I'm actually more interested in kind of buying more expensive insurance, if that makes sense. And you may say, well, I don't really want to pay for a third QB, but let's say I have a league where it's like Lawrence, Herbert, Kyler. I don't really want that in a start 11. There's too much more I could do with those extra two roster spots or those extra two starters to carry all three. What I'd rather do is tear down off of one of those guys. I'm fine getting a third quarterback, but I want to make it like the lowest common denominator, right? So give me Kirk Cousins instead of one of those guys, but also send me an elite player on top. Send me a couple future firsts. Like I'm fine with that in a start 11. In a start nine, I'm actually more interested in that really expensive insurance. Meaning I already know two times I'm going to have to go to my backups. If there's an injury, it may be more than that. It may be five, six, seven times, but I never really want to lose that advantage. So it's almost like you're protecting your war advantage in shallower leagues more. So just food for thought, if you're in a shallower league, don't necessarily look at the third QB as like it doesn't matter. I think it matters more in a shallow league if you think about it that way. Now, in the league we're talking about with the start 11, 30-man rosters, the reason why you can get away with it is because there's going to be a lot more options. And the point of having 12, and this is where I think it gets a little controversial, is who are those 12? And I'll just say this, a lot of my content and focus and research in this offseason is going to be about this topic. It is going to be about the backup QBs, what makes a backup QB. Sometimes there's things that happen at QBs that we aren't even really good at forecasting. Like no one really thought after the Vikings traded for Josh Dobbs and already started Jaron Hall that Nick Mullins would be the one that they would go to. To the point where they dumped Josh Dobbs to third string. Meaning like we've basically removed Josh Dobbs from the equation. And here we were a couple weeks ago thinking, well, Josh Dobbs has started almost this whole year. Multiple teams have brought him right in and started him. And now he's the third string quarterback on the Vikings and a team that's starting Nick Mullins. So we thought, okay, this guy's a future backup somewhere for sure. He's earned it. I don't know about that. He might be one of those where you have to make a tough roster decision on because there's other players out there. Then there's guys that are drafted in situations where they're the third QB. I talked about Jay Kaner. I talked about Hendon Hooker. I talked about Stetson Bennett, Clayton Toon. There's guys that they weren't even the backups going into the season, but they could easily slide into the backup role. So how do you value guys like that? Then you have guys like Trey Lance, who are just a wild card. He's too good to drop, but he wasn't the backup QB this year. Is he the backup QB next year? So it's very interesting, the backup QB market, because sometimes even the bottom half of the backup QBs we're not sure of. We're not sure. We thought Tyrod Taylor would take back over, but nope, they're using Tommy DeVito. Tommy DeVito wasn't a guy I picked up a ton because I was like, wow, he was the third QB. There's no way that he's somebody that's a backup. Boom. He's probably earned a backup job for sure next year. Jake Browning, same thing. 
those guys are probably locked in backups on two offenses where you go, yeah, I probably want the Bengals or Giants backup. Their offenses have been functional even with the backup. So that's the type of backup quarterback that you want to roster. So I just think it's a really dynamic thing. And again, there's only one backup per team as well. Now, there's going to be some where there's three that you may want to roster. There's some that you don't even want to roster the backup. But really, the scarcity is there at the backup QB position. So you do have to be very meticulous as to which guys you carry. I think you do have to examine the player analysis a little bit more with these backups. Who would I rather hold, Jarrett Stidham or Drew Locke? You know, which one of these backups won't be a backup next year? There's guys that are just pure systemic backups. Kyle Allen, Blaine Gabbert. You know, those guys have no upside. They've been around forever. They're 30 plus years old. They're literally just placeholders. But is the team going to replace them? You would think that the Chiefs should replace Blaine Gabbert as the backup, but what if they don't? You would think the Bills can get a better backup than Kyle Allen, but what if they don't? So there's always going to be backups on the radar where nobody rosters them, but they still fill the same spot that you would have had with Drew Locke, with Teddy Bridgewater, Jarrett Stidham, guys that have been on the radar before. So I think this analysis is going to be important. I'm going to do a full breakdown at the very end of the year. Might be the Week 17 show where I literally just go through the entire quarterback landscape. And you may wonder, well, why do I care about that show? Because I've been pushing this backup QB strategy so much, I think it takes an analysis where you dive through the entire player pool at the quarterback position in the current NFL, because that's where I want to be making these roster ads. If I need to get to this 12 number, I want to be as efficient as possible with casting the widest net possible in my league before the season closes, before the waiver wire closes. And there's going to be teams that hold on to these backup QBs because they were holding them this year. They don't cut them. But then when roster cut downs have to happen, IR activations have to happen, I need to cut down to make my rookie picks. There's going to be players that get cut. Jarrett Stidham's of the world is going to get cut. Tyrod Taylor's going to get cut. You may even see some higher end backups. Andy Dalton's, those types get cut. But if they're backups, they got to be right back on your radar. And another thing I want to challenge everybody with, in the next couple weeks, if you can trade, and this is going to be applicable even as we get into the offseason. And maybe it's even more applicable to the offseason now that I think about it. When you get into the dead period, right? End of January, early February. A very savvy move is going to be trying to buy some of these backup QBs. Think about an example. I move Evan Hall. Running back body, right? Fifth round pick. Got injured. Really didn't get to do anything this year. But may have a little bit of a name. I move Evan Hall for Jarrett Stidham. I move Evan Hall for Stetson Bennett, for Carson Wentz, whatever it might be. But those type of trades where you look at your roster and you go, man, it would really help if I could get rid of this wide receiver eight. I still have Sky Moore on my team. Can I move Sky Moore for a backup quarterback? And I don't even care what backup quarterback it is. Because you're talking about a roster spot with Sky Moore that is irrelevant, useless. It is a waste of a roster spot. I have Rondale Moore as well. Why? Why is he on your team? And think about it. I can't get anything for him. I can't even get like a third for him. I don't even know if I can get a fourth. Okay, can I go buy Jarrett Stidham? Can I buy Andy Dalton? Can I go higher? Can I go buy Jacoby Brissett, Mike White, Taylor Heineke? 
Just so think about the equity of what it makes sense to do when you can get rid of those types of players for backup QBs. Even if you whiff, here's the thing. You trade Sky Moore for Mike White. You do that in February. Nothing's going on. There's no talk about anything. Sky Moore had a bad year. Mike White, people forgot about him because he never came in there for Tua this year. I trade Sky Moore for Mike White. Now, what if Mike White's not the backup next year? Then what? You lost. But what did you lose? You actually didn't lose anything. You know why? Because you got rid of Sky Moore. You got rid of him off your team. So just cutting him to waivers would be a plus EV move. But the fact that you took a shot at a backup QB, maybe it hit, maybe it didn't. It's even better. So think about those types of trades. And I've tested the market. I'm going to be testing the market a ton because there's going to be periods uh, probably in February, late January, where there's literally nothing to do in leagues. And that's going to be one of the things where I'm going to finally have the time to sit down and focus and go, where can I trade some of this dead weight for the backup QBs that I'm willing to speculate on? So stay tuned for that episode. It will probably be here in the next week or two on this show where I'll go through the entire quarterback landscape. And actually, now that I think about it on the fly, I may have to do that episode next week because I believe in a lot of leagues, week 17, when the fantasy season ends, that's when a lot of waivers close. So I have to look into that to see if that's probably more pragmatic to do it next week instead of waiting until it coming out after week 17, which at that point, a lot of leagues may be closed for the season in terms of waivers. And if that's something your league does, I am massively in favor in being able to make ads and drops in the offseason. Not first come, first serve. Waivers runs like once a week, every Wednesday at like noon. That's when we typically do ours. But you have one opportunity a week to make a claim. You have one opportunity a week to add somebody out there. And it may just be a blurb that happens in February. It's a blurb that happens in free agency, but I'm able to add and drop players throughout the offseason. It's something that I'm huge on, but it's also something that you got to know in your league if you can do it. So I'll probably put that episode, now that I think about it, next week, because that will be the last week before week 17 where people have the opportunity to kind of fix some of these construction errors that they have going into the offseason. So with that, we'll go ahead and end the show. Uh, Hopefully you've enjoyed the roster construction series, this, and then the four parts before this, talking about each position. If you have any questions, hit me up. It's something that I'm certainly open to debating, talking a little bit more about. If anybody has any alternative theories or thoughts or ideas on it, I'll be happy to chop it up or go back and forth with you in the Discord. You can check out the Discord over at DestinationDevy.com or patreon.com slash all gas. You get more content in there. And then we have these types of discussions literally on a daily basis. So I appreciate everybody. Good luck in your fantasy playoffs. If you have any matchups that you need going your way here at the end of week 15, hopefully they're successful and you get into the semifinals of your playoffs. And with that, I will go ahead and sign off. Be chill. There's a rumor going down about me and you. Stirring